some people knew that the virus was already spreading or they strongly suspected that. And if they did go back and prove that and confirm that, the entire narrative that turned the world upside down would be exploded. So if you reach that conclusion, then you've got to start saying, well, what killed all of these people in New York City in April or in Northern Italy in February or March? And you reach the conclusion that it wasn't the virus. It was the protocols and the guidance and the panic. I've always thought that if this virus had not been discovered, the panic had not ensued, nobody would have known about it. Hello, everyone. That was the voice of today's guest, Bill Rice Jr. Bill is a professional journalist whose frustration with the COVID narrative led him to break free and ply his trade on Substack. His regular newsletter there now attracts thousands of readers. I came across Bill's work when preparing the Measuring the Mandates report, as he has specialised in documenting the evidence for early spread of the virus. Although we'd approached this question from slightly different angles, we'd both realised the unavoidable implication of this, that COVID couldn't be the thing driving the excess mortality. This is the biggest scandal of our time. In this interview, I ask Bill all about that. And we also discussed some of his writing and insights into how the narrative insulates and protects itself and what we can do to break through. I start out by asking what his perspective on the world was at the beginning of the COVID era. Before COVID, I was already what I would call a contrarian. Um, I've always been somebody that uh, challenges conventional wisdom. Uh, but uh, that bent to mind uh, accelerated uh, multifold after March 2020. And, and to answer the rest of your question, Richard, I, I was most of my life I've been I've worked as a managing editor, even a publisher at small community newspapers. Um, and uh, actually, in my last job, I got released, uh, let go. And so I had to become almost by default a quote-unquote freelance journalist. And so I was working as a freelance writer trying to sell stories uh, when COVID happened. And to tell you the truth, I wasn't having much success because the type of stories I want to write that challenge conventional wisdom or what I call the authorized narrative, there's really very little market for that, that type of journalism. So it, I got some stories published, uh, most of them for no pay. Uh, and you know, I was actually focusing on other topics. And I tell you, when, when COVID hit, I, uh, I went... 12 hours a day, full-time researching COVID topics. So a bit like yourself, I was a contrarian prior to COVID and I was cynical about the state's claims to be able to protect us from this, that, or the other, or to be able to alleviate poverty and cure disease and take us into a better world. So I had a kind of anarchic uh, viewpoint or a sort of libertarian viewpoint. And I also certainly wasn't averse to more conspiratorial thinking that beyond this this mask of pleasantness. There were nefarious actors lurking in the background and, and things weren't always what they seemed. I was taken in by portions of the COVID narrative and I had to come back and reflect that I'd, um, I'd gotten aspects of it wrong at a later point. Like I was very much convinced that there was a deadly virus going around and these spikes we saw, these dramatic spikes in the death rate were caused by that virus. Um, so that was one thing I had to repent of. And the other thing I suppose for me through the COVID era, and I wonder if you you found this too, I, I found that I'd been living in a bit of a cloud cuckoo land prior to COVID in my assessment and beliefs of what the general public were actually like. Like I'd, I'd engaged in a kind of fantasy where they were not like me, but more like me than I'd imagined. I, I imagined this cynicism of the state was more widely uh, pronounced than it really was. And that comforting fantasy came crashing down in March, April of 2020, unfortunately. It was a real black pill moment. And that's something that I I see you've picked up on that in your writing in, in a cynical way, the idea that people would 
rather be in a majority than know the truth, that people's motivations maybe aren't really truly safety, but they'd rather be in a majority and risk dangerous medical interventions than than truly be safe. Um, so how was that for you in terms of your, I suppose I've put two points in here, your emerging sense of what was going on with COVID and also your emerging sense of who these people were that you're sharing a country with? Boy, you articulated that very well, Richard. I mean, that, that's kind of captures the way I, I, I think as is, is, is well. Um, it didn't take me long to, to, to figure out that just about everything we were being told was a lie. And then to your point about, you know, why didn't everyone else get what I got? Uh, boy, that, that's, that's been a, a, a tough realization to accept because you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that might be the thing that disturbs me the most is that, you know, vast swaths of the population do not see or reach the conclusions that we've reached. And recently, my, you know, I, I've got theories on why that is. And, and the way I articulate that is that, you know, the vast majority of people are going to support what I call the current thing, or you might call that the authorized narrative. There is no benefit to challenging the narrative. Uh, and there are great costs if you do speak out against the, the narrative and show yourself to be a, a contrarian. So, you know, most people, in my view, are, are, are just uh, protecting the, their status and the, their employment, and, and they don't want to be, you know, rejected from, from the herd. And, and that, I think that largely explains why the, the vast percentage of the world population is, is going along with all of these lies. I think you're, you're speculating on, on similar lines to me. So to quote you from a recent article, one quote I pulled out is very interesting was, most people in the world must feel safer, in quotation marks, believing lies. Lies that have killed and injured millions of their fellow citizens, including family members, friends, and neighbors. And this is something that's puzzled me because prior to this, I might have said, well, people will prefer safety at any cost. They, they prefer safety over liberty. Okay. I don't think that's really in doubt. But when I say safety, I've got to reflect, it's not really a kind of safety that keeps you safe, okay? And I just had experience, I was in England uh, just the other day, and we were walking through a park and came to an area, like a small cemetery for that area of uh, the First World War, okay? And you have gravestones there of 17-year-old boys who were sent out to die over a patch of mud in Belgium. Now, whilst I appreciate that might not have been, or certainly wasn't the narrative that people believed in at the time, really, it was kind of easy enough to see through that this was a, a crazy thing, right? And yet people were willing to send their children and society was willing to send a generation of their young people out and sacrifice them to protect a narrative coming from the nation state. So you can't really say it's safety. And I, I think you've hit on that there, the same with COVID. You, like you can't, we can't pretend that any of these state narratives kept us safe in any way. So whatever it is people are selecting over truth, it's something that has the veneer of safety, but it's not really that. It's, uh, you're right. I mean, it, it, it's the opposite of safety. The, the, the narrative they have chosen to protect and, and believe is killing, literally killing them. If it's not killing them, it's, it's harming them with adverse events or it's harming them with, you know, rampant in, in inflation and economic reasons. You know, I, I, it's funny you mentioned World War One. Uh, my wife and I just watched a, a great documentary on World War One, and the points you just made, I had the exact same thoughts. You know, that you've got this terrible, terrible, unimaginable carnage and suffering, and that claimed I don't know how many tens of millions of lives, all based on a lie, a false narrative. And, you know, so why did so many people volunteer or go along with, you know, something that would kill them? So I guess one lesson you could say is that, you know, history repeats. And, and so if it happens in World War I, it, it can happen in 2020 with COVID. 
I do wonder because we're all left to speculate on this. We're, we're really what we're trying to do is understand a group of people who we perceive aren't like us. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say that I'm immune to ever engaging in these kind of behaviours. Okay, we've all got to got to watch ourselves and keep ourselves in check. But we're, we're trying to understand what it is. It, I could speculate that there's something rooted in our DNA on a deep level that I must not be ostracised from the group at all costs, and I'll take on actually quite a considerable risk because the worst thing is the the feeling of shame that is associated with ostracization from the group and maybe that's just something we you know from our primitive past have it locked in is the most dangerous thing conceivable so i'll go off to war i'll take the experimental medical procedure i'll stay in my house for a year and wear the silly mask anything other than ostracization from the majority bingo i mean man I, we think exactly alike and i, I think that's it, it, it it's fear of being uh, shunned, thrown out of the protective herd is, is what's uh, behind all of this. Um, it's so, the, I mean, I, I get you keep coming back to psycholog the psychology of it, the sociology of it, and that must be the, 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 the dominant thread. And then our quote, rulers who are controlling this, they have learned to manipulate that. Mm -hmm. uh, they know people are afraid of being uh, separated from the herd. And so that's how they get them to, to do the things they want them to do. Yeah, because the propaganda is often based on a sense of oneness, a sense of be part of the team, we're all in this together kind of thinking. It plays on various themes, like fear that you could hurt someone and fear that you're not a part, you're being a cruel, unkind, selfish person. It plays on that kind of moral structure within us. You know, I've thought a lot about war, and so they get you with the propaganda. They get you to sign up and, uh, you know, to protect the nation, and it's considered glamorous. But actual fighting and pulling the trigger and killing people, that comes down to, you know, the... Uh, the troops are just trying to defend their buddy. You know, they've been in uh, basic training and been with each other for a year and they grow attachments. And, and they also realize that, you know, they've got to all stick together and fight together or they'll all be killed. So, you know, it's really, they're just, when it actually comes to fighting, they're just, I think that they're just trying to, they're not thinking about fr protecting freedom or, or, or fighting the Hun. They're just thinking about, protecting themselves and, and their best mate that's next to them in the, in the trenches. Okay, just moving on to some of the focus of your work, Bill, you seem to have been quite drawn to this question about the early spread of the virus as being a kind of central thing that people, and even in the dissident COVID community, have missed because really the implications of that, that this virus that we identify as COVID has been spreading around way before March, hang on a second, we've got a serious problem with the narrative that suddenly it started killing people rapidly in April, March, April of 2020. So what, what drew, am I, tell me if I'm categorizing your work and your focus correctly there, and then what drew you to particularly investigate that question? You're right. That is, if, if there's a niche or what I'm known for, it's I'm the guy that's investigating what I call early spread of the virus. And you're right again that it's, as all the COVID scandals, and there must be 20 of them, uh, this is the one that, that gets the, the least attention. But I'd argue it might be the most important because, I mean, if you do accept my premise or my hypothesis that this virus began to spread widely in November or October 2019, and it is as contagious as all the experts say the virus is, then you're left really with no logical conclusion other than that tens of millions of people must have had been infected by the virus by the lockdown dates of, of mid-March. Mid and then you come to the question, well, if that's the case, why didn't we see all these spikes and excess deaths before then? And the conclusion I reach is, well, the reason you didn't is because this virus is not as lethal as we were told. The IFR, the CFR, the, the case infection rate or the infection fatality rate are minuscule, probably the same as flu or lower. So there was nothing 
to worry about. Another point I like to make is that, you know, probably who knows what percentage of the world had already acquired natural immunity, which leads me to the conclusion that lockdowns were preposterous. You know, if the goal of the lockdowns was to slow or stop the spread of a virus, which I think had been spreading for at least five, six months, and you could even go further and say there was no need for the, the, the life-saving vaccine because, one, we've seen that the virus wasn't killing people. It wasn't lethal. And, two, you had, you know, huge percentages or huge numbers of people who already had natural immunity. So early on, uh, I zeroed in on early spread and to answer your question why i started focusing on that is i think i had covid in january 2020 i had all the symptoms really was about as sick as i've ever been i would say 40 percent of my town seemed to be sick at that time my two children were sick at the exact same time and it didn't take me long you know maybe in april 2020 when the thought occurred to me that, man, this uh, this virus was here months ago. And I was off and running on my early spread investigation trying to prove that hypothesis. See, I had that thought without really thinking through the implications of it. Partly, I had a family member like, like yourself who felt very, very sick in January of 2020, right? So, okay, is this this virus they're talking about? And I just heard things around about... People have found it spreading going back into the latter half of 2019. But it didn't really click with me what the implications of that were because, and this is where I had to confront that I had been duped by part of the narrative and my own kind of like, let's say, uh, fear reactivity, the fear of seeing those big spikes occur in the death rate in the UK and across Europe, the United States. Um, I had had something of a fear reaction to that of like, oh, there's, there's a dangerous virus out there. So you know, I don't think government mandated lockdowns is a good way to go about it, but I'm going to be cautious in my own life. I'm going to maybe socially distance to an extent because, you know, I have elderly relatives who I interact with and they could be in a risk category. Um, I mean, not necessarily the, the stupidest thing to do when you, you're dealing with, um, you know, a, an unknown subject being thrust upon you. Uh, but really, the it was a year later or so when I came across the 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 book, particularly the book Virus Mania, and this school of people, uh, a lot of them dissidents from back in the HIV AIDS days of the 80s, who are, let's say, cynical about viral cause illness in general, general pointing out the, the patterns of death, both geographically, how you'd have a country with a massive spike in death right next to one with nothing going on at all. And that's true in the, the United States of the state, different states. And also, even more strikingly, I think, temporally, how nothing, 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 nothing. The World Health Organization says there's a deadly virus, it's now a pandemic, and boom, we're off to the races. And COVID suddenly, it's as if it noticed it had been caught out by Tedros and the WHO, and it said, oh, quick, let's stop killing as many people as possible. Um, and how that, that doesn't really make sense as a viral narrative, and actually, in fact, goes as far as to contradict it. And in writing the report, I didn't want to go down a kind of hard, ideological line of saying there are no viruses or COVID doesn't exist or COVID does exist or uh, because I see these kind of arguments uh, really being divisive in the movement. But I wanted to look at, when I, when I put it on account of York, well, it doesn't really matter whether COVID doesn't exist at all, right? Or if it's some kind of more benign virus than we're led to believe that it, there is some kind of novel coronavirus, but not a novel coronavirus that's killing vast numbers of people. When people say COVID, what they mean is the thing that's causing the death spikes. And the thing that's causing the death spikes, there's strong reason to think that thing isn't and cannot be a respiratory virus. Boy, you, you had uh, great sections of your document on the iotrogenic deaths, I thought. And that's another conclusion that flows from my early spread premise that, uh, and you, you kept, you correctly characterized my, my theory is that, yes, there was probably a new virus, but the important point is it was benign. It, it was not lethal at all. Uh, it wasn't 
killing people. It was making people sick. I think I'm one of them. I mean, some people sick, but you know, like the flu, you you get over it and you move on. Uh, so if you reach that conclusion, then you've got to start saying, well, what killed all of these people in New York City in April or in Northern Italy in, in February or March? Uh, and you reach the conclusion that it wasn't the virus. It was the, the protocols and the guidance and the panic and the, 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 the taking away the antibiotics that they used to prescribe, et cetera, et cetera. So from just this kind of contrarian hypothesis that this virus was here much earlier, you, you reached several stunning uh, conclusions that are, that are being, that, that are being, I mean, nobody's paying attention to them. I mean, uh, there's all kinds of ways you could prove early spread and investigate this. And a point I keep making is, you know, it's the dog that didn't bark theory. Why didn't they go back and investigate, you know, these people that had these symptoms and later tested positive for antibodies? Why don't they look at those influential, like, illness surveillance reports and say, you know, heck, we had a huge spike of people that were getting sick and having flu-like symptoms and connect some dots. And the reason I think they didn't do that is some people knew that the virus was already spreading or they strongly suspected that. And if they did go back and prove that and confirm that, the entire narrative that turned the world upside down would be exploded. One of the things that's been most striking to me in attempting to distribute the document I, I wrote, Measuring the Mandates, has been one of the, also the most rewarding facts of it is when I've sent it to people who are dissidents in the, in the COVID community, uh, COVID dissidents, and they've gotten back to me quite surprised with its content, particularly on iatrogenics, and that people who have really thought a lot about this and written a lot about this over a number of years and have seen through the illusions of masks and the shots and the lockdowns and, and all of that really hadn't considered iatrogenic deaths. And it's almost... Or, or to the extent they consider them, they thought, okay, well, maybe that's a, a contributing factor too, but really we're dealing with a virus. And we all agree on that, you know, um, me, right. Anthony Fauci, everyone. And it's almost like when these things come along, uh, whatever the big shocking event is, there are certain things that get embedded in our minds about it straight away. And then we never question those things again. And the idea that those initial death spikes were caused by a virus becomes a kind of foundational thing. And then we look to answer questions, well, does ivermectin work or not? Or or how can we show the lockdowns are effective or not? But we've all agreed there was a virus there. And for me, I, I noticed that myself. And I, I had to sit down with my head in my hands like a year, 18 months into it. Not because at that point I felt confident that the deaths were iatrogenic, but I'd recognized that I'd really gone against a theme, a core kind of philosophical theme, which underpins my podcasting and writing everything, which is when you have a complex system, you can't move one part of it and then measure the result because the whole system will adapt to account for that. So if you announce a virus is on its way, medical systems don't stand still. They start in engaging in changes which are themselves dangerous. So the first thing the British government did was kick 25,000 old people out of the hospitals back into care homes, right? And it stands to reason uh, people don't go to hospitals for a bit of a jolly. They're there because they're getting perhaps essential treatment. And then they wouldn't let any of the elderly people in. And then the doctors wouldn't go into care homes. And then all of a sudden, the, uh, the, the level of end-of-life drugs and the refusal of food and water on these end-of-life pathways, the, the British NHS likes so much, that got ramped up. And all of these changes are the, as the result of a belief in a virus is on its way from China. And I, I had to recognize my own, uh, how I'd allowed myself to be duped. I'd allowed myself to fall into believing certain things without questioning it, um, and which is what I see more broadly going on. But I wonder, do you see that too? Do you find that your work on this is um, kind of a minority or something that people, even the real dissidents, haven't considered and haven't considered the implications of it? I, early on, I, I realized I was working on the, the mother of all taboo explosive theories. I figured it out in a couple of days that, you know, the virus was here earlier. They're covering that up. It's not lethal. 
uh, and then you get into where did the virus originate, and you know the, the current narrative is it must have been at this Wuhan lab, which maybe it did start there, but it didn't start there in December or November. And I, I keep thinking, well, the, the reason they probably want to cover all this up is because there's a possibility it started it at a lab in America or Ukraine or, you know, they're responsible for releasing this, this virus. So you, you can't prove my early spread hypothesis without, you know, uh, a seismic event occurring. But, I mean, lately... I have been thinking a lot about this iogenic death thing. And the conclusion I've reached is that the vast, 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 you know, 90, 95% of deaths after April 2020 had to be from something that was not COVID. Now it's, and you've identified, I mean, it's, it's a perfect storm of factors that all came together you know, 10 different reasons, you know, it's the ventilators, it's uh, not prescribing antibiotics, it's, it's sending people that are sick back to the nursing home, it's people afraid to go to the hospital who need to be in the hospital, it's the nurses and doctors afraid to give care, it's the, the isolation, which I several people say that you know, stress causes sicknesses that can kill you, and uh, isolation and so on and so on, and uh, remdesivir, and you know, drugs they prescribed that were, were probably killing you, morphine. And uh, I say, you look at all these deaths that we all assume, you know, you know what they say about assume, uh, we all assume are COVID, you know, the conclusion I reached is, you know, first check your assumptions. Maybe our, our basic assumption all along was, was, was wrong. And, you know, but I would fully understand if anyone's tuning into this who's not familiar with the kind of thing we're talking about. Or if someone just woke up now, like had gone to sleep in April of 2020 and woke up now and listened to this, I would fully understand them thinking these guys are off their rockers. You know, the, the idea that all these doctor-induced theatrogenic factors could add up to this, and the, the, the whole human race, all the medical authorities could trick themselves, could delude themselves, could be taken in by a kind of magic trick into believing that there was a virus going around, killing all these people when there wasn't. It was actually, my goodness, it was actually the response to the virus. It was actually the the aggressive end of life pathways and the, oh, we can cut down on antibiotic use because these these are, are viral illnesses, not um, bacterial. So we don't need this um, in, this year in 2020. The idea that could account for it, I would fully understand. And I think it's a, a natural reaction when I, when I talk to people who are not uh, really invested in, in this kind of investigation that they think I'm just bonkers, that I must know so little about it as to as to draw such an outrageous conclusion because nobody who had really thought about this or really read about it could could say something so ridiculous. And I fully understand that. But the it, the confrontation for me of continuously coming across the, the when you see the data of the antibiotic rate prescription rate in in the winter of 2020 just collapsing in a way that perfectly correlates with the deaths going up. And well, yeah, it turns out antibiotics uh, they do something. They actually are quite effective medicine. If you take them away, a lot of people are going to die of infections and and all these different ways. It's it, it's the most unbelievable thing. If you'd have described this to me in February of 2020 and, and said, could something like that happen? I said, no way, man. Like the, the med, Our medical and scientific systems are not so fragile that they could ever, ever allow something like that to happen. I, I don't like the media, but even the media wouldn't let you get away with this. But here we are. You know, I... Uh... When I first started trying to publicize my theory that the virus was spreading earlier, the, the counter argument I was given was that's not true because you would have seen uh, a rash, a huge number of deaths in December 2019, January 2020, February. And so that was kind of a hurt. I said, well, that's a good point. Now, that's a mm -hmm. fair point. Yeah, it is. But, 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 but eventually, I started getting more and more information about these iotrogenic deaths. And I became more and more convinced that the real IFR for COVID was minuscule. 
that I reached, you know, almost by process of elimination, that, that this theory that uh, a variety of factors explain the spike of deaths. And then, I, you know, another point we haven't made, Richard, is that, you know, that uh, I started thinking about when were all these deaths exploding, like in America, in New York, and a little in New Orleans, and Chicago, and Detroit, in April. Well, that's just, that's bizarre, too. I mean, I've studied uh, these flu seasons, and, and I know they all run from October to, through March, pretty pretty much. Mm -hmm. So we had the first respiratory virus that was didn't do anything in the cold and flu months, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, exploded in April in the warm weather months. Uh, it, it just didn't logically follow to me. And you're right, this scandal we're talking about, it, it's almost a truth too big for people to handle. You know, we've all heard that, seen the movie and heard you can't handle the truth. Uh, it, it's too massive for people to grasp that, uh, one, there wasn't a serious lethal virus, and two, that it was the hospitals and doctors and the CDC protocols that were really killing most of the people. And then you have the lockdowns themselves, you know, with the suicides and the drug overdoses, uh, the loneliness, uh, they were killing people. And then the third component of all this is, is the vaccines, which are, are now killing people. So you've got scandal on top of scandal, and all of them are too big to wrap your heads around. And I mean, it's, uh, but, uh, it, it's all the theories that we're outlining today that they all fit. Uh, I haven't heard anybody yet that can say uh, your logic is is broken because of A, B, or C. I mean, everything I've outlined today, I, I've got evidence that yeah. backs it up. Yeah, we had to piece it together piece by piece, didn't we? Because I remember people relatively early on saying it's the lockdowns that are doing the killing, you know, and at the time, I rejected that because I thought, okay, I get it that there's more suicides maybe. I get it that people aren't going to the hospital when they're having heart attacks for fear of this, that, and the other, uh, well, for fear of COVID specifically. Um, what I can't see that you can get these giant spikes from people being asked or told, told, <laughs> yeah, told to stay at home for a few weeks. So I was cynical of that. And that, what I didn't get is it's not, being told to stay at home for a few weeks. It's not young, healthy people having to stay in their houses. It's the medical changes that are really a part of the lockdowns. That's that's what's doing it. So it really took a long time to piece this together. Oh, I mean, I hope people are listening. I mean, this is it. I am convinced that this is what happened. I mean, who is it? Dennis Rancor, I think is his name, the scientist from... Uh, Canada has done a lot of work uh, along these lines, showing that it's you know iotrogenic deaths and, and, and not a virus. Uh, but if you change the protocols, and then the other thing you did is you panic people, and then they, you know, they, they get more nervous and stressed out, and they go to the hospital, and then they suddenly get all these treatments they didn't need or that are harming them, you get a spike in, in, in deaths. Uh, another concept I stumbled upon belatedly, Richard, was the, are you familiar with this uh, concept known as the nocebo effect, I think is what it's called. It's the opposite of the placebo effect. Yeah, I've heard of it, yeah. Well, uh I think that played a big role is that, you know, uh, the placebo effect is, you know, you, you give somebody a, a, a placebo, I mean, it, it shouldn't make you sick. The nocebo effect is that people are convinced that there's this big virus going around and so they get stressed and nervous and isolated and they go to the hospital and their psychological blood pressure going up and whatever's going on in their body actually is a self-fulfilling prophecy mm. and makes some of these people sick. Yeah, I know Dinny Rancor has 
really put that down as a, a major factor, the psychological stress. And it has to be. I didn't focus on it so much because it's intangible, right? So you can see the level of midazolam being prescribed. You can see that spiking up in accordance with the death rate. And you can see the fact that 25,000 old people are booted out of hospital in the UK. You can't really see stress in the same way, but I accept that the, the science is there about how it affects the immune system, that it, it must have been a factor. Yeah. Uh, they uh, People convinced themselves they were sick. They went to the hospital and then the caregivers changed the way they interact with these patients because of this and, you know it was a a, a a cycle of events and so somebody that four months later they would have treated completely different then they put them on these other protocols gave them these drugs put them on the ventilators uh that, that led to their death i've always thought that if this virus had not been discovered <laughs> Had not the panic had not ensued, nobody would have known about it. Uh, it, it. People were far better off going to the hospital, being treated the way they were when they went to the hospital sick in December 2019, as opposed to March 16, 2020. Uh, is one of the, another one of the little shocking conclusions I've reached. I've actually, mm. you know, uh, I've did the. The reason I got started on early spread, or one of the, the big stories I did, I did a feature story on a man from my state of Alabama in the United States who had COVID in December. So did his wife and several people in his house. And he got very, very sick. And he went to the hospital for 28 days in the ICU and he nearly died several times. But the, uh, the nurses and the doctors, you know, they saved him. Uh, from Tim McCain's story, I've reached a couple of conclusions, you know, that uh, COVID, even with the most extreme, worst, severe cases, doesn't kill you. And you are better off going to the hospital with any illness in December 2019 than you were in March 2020. Yeah, before these protocols were brought in, particularly around the ventilators and so on. Yeah. What do you see, to move on there, but what do you see as the, the focus or the purpose of your goal for your work, your writing now? And obviously it's to educate people, but we've had this kind of black pilling of recognizing that whereas certainly at certain points in my life, I felt it's only that people need information. And if you could just provide the right information in the right way, in a way they could receive it, everyone would come on board and there'd be a revolution. And I'm way beyond that, right? So um, I have a much yeah. uh, bleaker picture of the world now. And I'm really now more thinking along the lines of you need enough people who can receive the information to have as good of information as possible. So there's a certain vanguard in society that resists these things. And when they fire up, whenever, whatever the next thing is, if it's climate lockdowns or if it's something to do with the internet or a currency collapse, whatever the next thing is, there's enough people who are, are cynical and waiting to push back on the agenda to keep society from tipping over into the edge. But it's really, we're not looking to, you know, 40, 50% of people to do anything other than go along with the next narrative. So what's the, what hope do you find in your writing? Because you've become a, a successful Substack journalist, uh, this this new breed of journalists during the COVID era. And you get a lot of engagement on your blog as well. I know you've got a very engaged uh, readership in terms of commenting on your work. Uh, what, yeah, what, I mean, that, yeah, I suppose like I'd be interested in that too, what that's been like for you to come out of a more traditional kind of form of journalism and, and into, into this new frontier. So what's that like? And what's, um, well, uh, how do you think of your goal for, for your work and what you're trying to do? And I've written uh, stories about this, Richard. So yeah, <laughs> thanks for this question. This question, I've concluded. People probably perceive me as the the early spread guy. You know, the guy that's trying to prove early spread of this virus. And I recently wrote an article saying, "Yeah, I'd like to prove my hypothesis is true." But my real goal is just to let people know, please stop trusting these alleged experts and authorities 
Do not trust these people. They're wrong. They're the problem. And if that message would resonate with more people, I could, my life will have saved a lot of people and made the world a better place for my children and grandchildren. The key is quit blindly following these alleged experts. So as I keep thinking if we could get just one COVID scandal exposed definitively, where the man on the street, 90% of the population says, yes, the vaccines are not safe and effective. Or, or yes, uh, iotrinic deaths killed hundreds of thousands or millions of people. That would be the truth bomb that, you know, shocked people into understanding their world better more correctly and my premise says that once you have one truth bomb you're going to have more truth bombs because people the next question people are going to have is well what else have they been lying about mm. and then you start getting people that are grappling with things concepts they've never grappled with in their lives and then you have a groundswell of movement to purge these people from positions of authority, uh, to drain the swamp. This is the, the phrase we use in America, you know, Donald Trump became famous for. Well, I think we do need to drain the swamp and we do need to expose and humiliate these alleged authorities, but that would take one blockbuster scandal to be definitively exposed so i can't focus on all the covid scandals and so i've said well bill your little niche nobody else is focusing on it you just go with early spread and see what you if that might be the scandal that uh wakes people up so uh and then can you get even if can you get through the gatekeepers of the news even if you have people already have proof of what we're talking about here but it doesn't matter because it's not the New York Times or the Washington Post or uh, CBS television that's reporting it. Uh, so, you know, our, our, our marching orders are twofold. First, we've got to prove it. And then we've got to get the so-called official press to acknowledge it. So you would need one heretic or apostate in the mainstream media that said, you know, damn the torpedoes, I'm just going to go out, we're going we're gonna to say this and expose this. And then maybe the 51% the, the, uh, of the population might respond like I want them to. Yeah, I mean, I have to say my initial black pilling has a lot more white in it now, okay, because give people time and they tend to overcome a degree of that fear reactivity and reset to a kind of normal. And I think Particularly, I think it's the issue of the vaccine, because people directly saw it wasn't as effective because they had it and they had it again, and then they had the booster, and then they got COVID, and then they were sick, and then they transmitted it, and all the rest. And because they probably know someone who's at least had a bad reaction, and possibly knows someone who's had a very bad reaction, I think that has been a kind of red pill uh, for the population. And I think that it's. Um, as time's gone by, my sense of despondency, which could also ruins the danger of turning into a sense of contempt for people, right? Like initially here, there were people phoning into the police because they saw drivers going along with their windows down, okay? And thought that they were breathing COVID-infected air into the environment. And it's hard to hear that and not feel a sense of contempt for your fellow human beings, okay? But I can also recognize ways that I got duped. So, you know, I have to be, go easy on that. But I think for me, it's it's, um, it, it's turned into something more hopeful in the, I'm not trying to get everyone to come on board, but I think there's, if there's enough people who know what went wrong, next time something like this happens, there's immediately a resistance. There's immediately when the death rate spikes, people saying, hang on, what's the midazolam rate doing? Hang on, how aggressive are we being with the ventilators or the end-of-life pathways? And that just stops this kind of thing from emerging and happening again. And well, I don't think... Yes, hmm? who, yeah. who is going to interject and raise those questions? It would have to be 
some journalist at the New York Times or TV. And, you know, my despondent point is those people aren't the, the real watchdog journalists. No, say that. no, that's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. I mean, there's my hope is that the alternative is just big enough to make it uncomfortable and to make it just widely known enough to to scare the establishment, to scare the, the state from doing it again, to give them reluctance to think, hang on. Interrupt, you know, that no, no, that segues into a discussion of this uh censorship industrial complex and uh the mass censorship programs we've had, which actually the whole purpose of those programs was to block people like you and me from uh making our points on Facebook or Twitter or, or, or Google. So, you know, the, 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 the key would have been to expose everyday people from our towns to this counter logic and counter narratives, but they uh, blocked that. So, uh, you, you know, it, it will be interesting to see if in the future when the next pandemic hits or when all this uh, central bank digital currency movements come along and the next climate change hoax comes along, are they also going to block dissenting opinion, uh, you know, on the town square, which is media platform, which is Facebook? Very definitely. So, and you you could believe if it wasn't for the algorithms acting against us, the COVID narrative might have collapsed quite quickly. And it would have saved, I've made that point too, that if Facebook was used just to use Facebook, which has a billion followers in the world, if Facebook had been used like it was intended or should have been used, my post would have gone viral. Yours would have gone viral. Uh, lots more people would have been questioning the narrative. Uh, the war there would be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people alive today that aren't alive today. Mm. I I am hopeful as maybe hopeful is the wrong word, but I I know that there can be a general despondency amongst the COVID dissenters in in feeling like uh, we failed in some way. Okay, but. I do think that if it hadn't been for the efforts, and oftentimes they've been efforts that feel like in trying to knock a brick wall down with a bucket of water, if, if it hadn't been for that, it would have been so much worse. Okay, we would have been living in a permanent lockdown state where they, they, these are just periodically things that happen now, where every so often you go a month or two and you can't leave your homes and the business have to close down. And we would have been living in a state where small business was increasingly a thing of the past and it's all the giant corporations. Uh, and in a state where you really need vaccine passports to to travel anywhere and it's only been the pushback against it it's only been people putting in the hard yards of researching and writing that that has formed a resistance against that we'd be in a much worse place if there hadn't been this immense effort to push back however right. hindered right. that effort has been that's the, the glass half full it, it, despite the best efforts of the, the censors information has still gotten around what I call the, the, the gatekeepers of the news, those barricades they erect. The people are still, enough people are still finding true information. And, and you know, a good example of what we're talking about is the uh, number of people who have gotten, gotten subsequent vaccine boosters compared to the original two shots. I just read an article that in some states in America, 88% of the population has been vaccinated at least one time. Mm. And if you look at the booster rates now, they might be 16% of the people are getting. So what happened to the other 70%? Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, they, all, they all rejected the narrative. People are um, slow to learn, but they do learn. And they, uh, you know, they kind of voted with not giving their arms to the nurses to give them a shot so that's an encouraging sign yeah you also see like you wrote about uh, rfk going on joe rogan right now i think we'd all love to see Dinny rancor on joe rogan but that's not going to happen there are limits to this but it's still a very positive thing that uh, a robert kennedy jr interview can go out to millions of people and there is a sense of a delegitimizing of institutions like CNN, not amongst their hardcore believers, but you know, a lot of people have lost faith in this mainstream media through seeing its its ridiculous actions. 
You know, that's a silver lining of COVID, Richard. This is the, the, the mainstream media. Well, people call them the establishment media or the corporate media. Well, let's just call them the mainstream media. They're dying. I mean, it's dead man walking. Uh, and since I think that they're responsible to take the lion's share of blame for everything that happened in COVID because they didn't do their real watchdog role, this is a, a, a fantastic development as far as I'm concerned. Mm. And Robert Kennedy Jr. is, boy, he's a fascinating story. And I've written several articles about him. And he is doing better than the, the pundit said he would. But that's because he has figured out that he can go around the censors and, and the gatekeepers of the media and still get his message out there. Okay, Bill, thank you very much for the conversation today. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say or reflect on before we conclude? Well, if anybody's interested in my articles, uh, most of them are about COVID, but not all of them. Uh, my newsletter is called Bill Rice, like the food, R-I-C-E, Bill Rice Jr. newsletter. Bill Rice Jr.'s newsletter. I started a Substack about nine months ago and i think i have about 140 articles on there now so i appreciate people uh checking out my Substack, and i man i appreciate you letting me talk to you today richard thank you very much i really appreciate you coming on and thank you bill has written for the audience bill's written some articles on the uh, paper stroke book i was involved in measuring the mandate so uh, for any of um for any of bill's readers out there um I'll link to that in the show notes. And Bill, I'll link to your blog in the show notes so anyone can look. And um, as I've mentioned before, Bill's Substack articles have a very engaged community on them. So you always get like a lot of good conversation going on. So I'd recommend people check that out. So you know thank what, you very I, much. I, I was going to say that one pleasant aspect of me becoming a, a Substack writer is that uh, lots of people have picked up my articles. Like there is a news aggregator in America called Citizen Free Press. It, it kind of replaced the Drudge Report for conservative thinking people. And uh, they have run about 15 or 20 of my stories from Substack. And because of that, I my little Substack uh, has reached uh, almost a million readers in nine months, if you can believe that. That's amazing, isn't it, to take that in? It's, yeah, that's incredible. Thank you very much, Richard. You okay, thank you. Do come back I, on sometime. I hope we can uh, talk soon. I would love to vis visit the Isle of Man. <laughs> it's a great place. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Bill. See you soon. All right, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.